You're listening to our Southside Baptist Church podcast. For more audio content, please refer to our website. This is baptistchurch.com. I want you to take your Bibles and I want you to turn to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke chapter, chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. I'm preaching today on a, on, a, on a man that when I say his name, anybody that's ever been to Sunday school as a child will immediately recognize, and that is a man by the name of Zacchaeus. Uh, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. And uh, I titled this message, this is actually a series Uh, we're going to begin this week called Fixing Your Eyes on Jesus. You know, the Bible says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith. And today's sermon is on Zacchaeus, and I titled it Climbing Ladders and Climbing Trees. So uh, Luke chapter 19. And you know, last week, I talked to you about the Roman road. You know, we talked about leading people to Christ. I had a man come up to me afterwards, and he said, Brother Jeff, he said, uh, I want to get those scriptures from you because I'm working with a man who's going through a lot of hard times right now. Marriage is falling apart. Children has a lot going on in his life, and I want to be able to walk him down the Roman road. I want to talk to him about salvation. And we sat down after the service, and he put those things down in the notes of his phone in order. You know, it's a great thing to share your faith. Now, let me tell you, uh, one of the things you and I need to do, uh, you, sometimes we need to keep a Bible. Uh, Graceling, come up here this morning. You were such a trooper. I want to give you something. Uh, this is not my checkbook. For some of our older members, come on up here. Some of our older members, they may, uh, they may think this is a checkbook. It's not a checkbook. This is actually a New Testament. And a lot of times it's good to keep a New Testament in, in your pocket, uh, in your purse, or whatever. But I want to give that to you because you just really just outshine today. So thank you. God bless you. I love you. And uh, you take that. And the reason I give that to Graceland was Hayden, her friend, was with her Wednesday night. They were both sitting over here. I didn't know um, who the young lady was. She came up afterwards, and Hayden said, you know, I want to talk to you about also being baptized. And, you know, that's what it's all about, right? It's leading people to Christ. Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. You and I are here for one reason— That is to exemplify, live out the testimony of Jesus Christ in our life. That's why you're not in heaven yet. God wants you to be the light, salt, and yeast. He wants you to tell lost people how to be saved. He wants you to be that difference. You can't do it. Now, I realize, I don't know where my phone is at, but you can't realize or know the impact until you do it one time. When you lead one person to Christ, it'll make an impact on your life. Well, that's what we're talking about today. Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho. He was passing through. A man was there by the name of, let's say it together, Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead 
and he climbed a sycamore tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Could you imagine Jesus coming to eat lunch with you today? So he came down at once and he welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and they began to mutter. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, look here, and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay them back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to what? Seek and to save that which was lost, what was lost. Let's pray again. Lord, we thank you, and we love you, and we give you all the glory, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Keep your Bibles open to Luke 15. You know, I wrote this down. I thought it was good. It, was, it may have been Swindoll who said it. How do you measure success? Now listen to what this writer said. How do you measure success? To laugh often and much. Isn't that true? Sheila and I, we were watching Bill Gaither last night. Bill and Gloria Gaither wrote songs like He Touched Me Because He Lives and different songs. And one of the things that Bill Gaither said, he said, there was always laughter in our home. I see Megan moving around, getting situated back there. And if you have Silas around very long, you can't help but laugh. He's such a unique, fascinating child and says such unique things. He walked in yesterday. Sheila had slipped into their home to see Amy and them who were visiting. And Silas walked in and he said, Nam. He said, I did not know that you were here. Sometimes Megan says he's surprised that he'll talk with a British accent. But, uh, you know, um, just a unique personality. But one of the things that I've learned is a good, healthy home. They laugh, and they laughed often. Have you quit laughing? Do you laugh anymore? Now listen to what he went on to say. He said, how do you measure success? To laugh, to laugh often and much. To win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children. To earn the appreciation of honest critics and to endure the betrayal of false friends. To appreciate beauty to find the best in others, to leave the world a bit better, rather by a healthy child, a redeemed social condition, or a job well done, to know even one other life breath, to, to know even one other life breathe because you lived, this is to be successful. Isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? He went on to make this statement. He said, some people, when it comes to success... He said they're waiting for their ship to come in. There's only pr one problem. They never sent one out. Are you waiting for your ship to come in? You're waiting for success, but you don't do anything to try to bring it about? You see, he went on to make this statement. He said sometimes we are sometimes waiting for good things to happen in our life when we have invested nothing to gain those good things. 
You know, people often talk about a dentist, what a dentist charges. Dentists, are, they, they charge a lot of money. I don't understand why they have to do that and this and that. Well, they don't pay malpractice insurance. They don't take care of the hygienist and the assistant and the clerical and all the, and the rent and the lease and the money and all of that. But, you know, I remember our dentist, our oldest daughter, when I used to sit there for hours and hours and see her, over and over again, going through those little index cards, learning them while she was in dental school, over and over and over again. Hey, listen, while her high school friends were out there running the streets, having a high old time, she was studying those note cards, working her way through dental school, endlessly studying over and over and over and over again. Let me ask you something. You're waiting for your ship to come in, but you've not done anything to... You've not sent anything out, young people? Are you waiting for somebody to smile and give you a million dollars? Are you trying to figure out how to get your education, how to do everything that you can to ensure that you have success? We still live in the best country in the world for that possibility. In fact, I say to parents all the time, two things now. If you raise a child with a good work ethic and some manners, my friend, they can go anywhere today because I have millionaire businessmen that are weeping and crying because they cannot get people to work for them today. I ate with a man one day for lunch a while back. He needed counseling. He sat there and he wept at one point, wept in a restaurant, and he said, I can't get good labor anymore. I think Hobby Lobby pays about $18 an hour. And you don't work Sundays. Chick-fil-A will help young people not only work their way, but listen, they'll help you get through college. There are still good jobs to have. And we know that teachers make a lot of money. (laughs) I just said that. I was just checking Emily Williams back there to... But anyway, uh, the Executive Digest said this about success. The trouble with success is that the formula is the same as the one for a nervous breakdown. Isn't that true? You know, the reality is that some people, they get to the top, they have money, they have popularity, they have everything. You know, you ever notice Hollywood, sports, political figures. Have you ever noticed a lot of the wealthy people have all the nervous breakdowns? So, you know, success doesn't automatically mean that you're going to get rid of all your problems. One writer said there is never enough success in anybody's life to make one feel completely satisfied. I was with a man one day, and if I said his name, every one of you would know who he is. We were riding along. We were going to meet a preacher, a guest evangelist, and we were going to meet some other people. This man's a prominent businessman. I didn't even know him well. All of a sudden, his wife rang his phone. He's talking to her, and they're in an argument. And I thought, man, I'm getting more and more uncomfortable. We're in this fancy car. I'm riding with this guy whose name everybody would know. And we're riding along here. And he's in an argument with his wife. And he put, and when he hangs up the phone, he turns and looks at me. He doesn't even know me that well. And he said to me, he said, my wife said we were happier in a flat. And for anybody who is familiar with uh, European language, Euro- the Europeans call rent flat. If your rental property is a flat, an apartment is a flat. And what she was saying is, we've got everything, millionaires, we got all that money could buy, but we're not happy. And my friend, his marriage has been nothing but a heartache to him, multiple affairs, all kinds of problems. 
You can't buy success. And this is Zacchaeus. This is Zacchaeus. And so first of all, you look at his circumstances. Now the Bible said he was small in stature. Uh, I don't know how small people have tried to speculate, but um, he was probably unusually small. Lottie Moon was four foot, I think she was four foot ten inches, the famous missionary of Southern Baptist, famous missionary to China. She was about four foot ten or something like, a little short. Imagine that. Zacchaeus was short. And let me tell you something that I've learned about short people sometimes. My dad told me this. He said, son, he said, sometimes a short man will have a bad attitude. He resents his stature, and the reality is is that he has the little man syndrome, and he's always looking for a fight. My dad told me that because more often than not, sometimes the bully on on the playground was the little short kid trying to make a point. You know how tall Putin is? Well, if, he had, if I had that name, I'd probably be upset too. Putin, president of, the, of, of Russia. Do you know how tall he is? He's five foot six. You know what Putin does? He positions his photographs and puts people around him to ensure that he's the tallest one. He stands on a platform. He wears high heels, elevated shoes to ensure. I like saying high heels rather than elevated shoes because I like to say all I can to this Marxist communist leader who's making a, 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 a tragedy there in the Ukraine. Let's call him what he is. He's a, he's a, political, he's a political bully. He's a Marxist communist. And if he doesn't get stopped, he'll do like Hitler did. He'll march his little rear all the way across Europe unless somebody says you can't go no farther. He's a little man. There's been plenty of them. Napoleon was 5'6". Hitler was 5'9". John Adams, 5'7". James Madison, our shortest president, was 5'4". Guys, by the time you're 18 years of age, you've probably reached your stature. You're probably not going to get any taller. Hey, girls, for you, it's about 14 years old. Zacchaeus was a short man. And I love Luke. And I love Luke because Luke's the only one that tells us this story out of the life of Christ. While Paul was in prison two years, we believe that Luke, this ship doctor, this physician, was a master historian creating, as he, as he worked through the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, political, geographical side notes. He's unbelievable. But then he tells us about this man in Jericho, a man by the name of Zacchaeus. He's a ladder climber. A ladder climber. You know what ladder climbers are? Sometimes ladder climbers do whatever they can do to get to the top. Some people are successful, but they don't mind stepping on a few people to get there. He was a tax collector. And the Bible said this was a position. Hey, listen, a tax collector was basically viewed by the Jew as almost the worst human being on the earth because they were in cahoots with the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was about like Putin in control of the Ukraine. He was a trader. 
And what, a, what they would do is a tax collector. If a man wanted to be a tax collector, he would go to the Roman government and he would bid for the position. If he got the position, then what he would do, the Romans would tell him how much he had to collect and then they would look at him and say, and anything you collect over and beyond that, that's yours. And so guess what happened? They inflated the numbers. Tax collectors jacked up the prices, put people through great heartache, great suffering because they were backed. He was a ladder climber. He stepped on people to elevate himself. He had no problem excusing his prosperous life, even if he had to cheat, manipulate, coerce, or bully his constituents. You know, I wrote this down, but it's so true. There's many a poor man you ever notice how many poor men who become politicians and then become rich? Does that bother anybody else in this room or is it just me? You ever notice how poor men who don't have anything all of a sudden become a politician and they become extremely wealthy, rich, millionaires? Doesn't that bother you just a little bit? Doesn't that rub you the wrong way? Be servants of the people. I wrote this down. Poor men who become politicians and then become rich. They secure their positions while their constituents remain in poverty. They legislate. Many of them legislate the systematic killing of the unborn, which has been going on for a very long time. And then they take the funds from organizations like Planned Parenthood to keep their positions in power. Zacchaeus knew the system. And he knew how to court the powers to be. And he knew how to manipulate the numbers. And he knew how to do business in the back room. He wasn't just a tax collector. Luke said he was chief of the tax collectors. He was the best. And he was in Jericho. Jericho is... Destin, Florida. How many have ever been to Destin, Florida? Raise your hand. How many of you wish you were at Destin, Florida right now? I would even raise my hand and I'm preaching. You know, that emerald water, that sugar white sand, that place that just seems to be a magnet. You know, so William Barclay said this about Jericho. He said Jericho was a very wealthy, important town. It lay on the Jordan Valley and commanded both the approach to Jerusalem and the crossings of the river, which gave access to lands east of the Jordan. It had a great palm forest. It was world famous for balsam groves. It perfumed the air for miles around it. Its gardens of roses were known far and wide. It was known as the city of palms. Josephus, the historian of that day, called it a divine region, the fattest in Palestine. The Romans carried its dates and balsam to worldwide trade and fame. All of this, William Barclay said, combined to make Jericho one of the greatest taxation centers in Palestine. In essence, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus was sitting on a gold mine. He had everything that money could buy. He had reached the pinnacle of success. He was the top of the food chain. He prided himself in the fact that he was not only in a corrupt system, he had learned how to survive it and how to be good at it. You ever known people like that? You ever known anybody like that? You ever known people that were good business people, 
but the reality is that everything about him was unethical and immoral. You ever know people in any work, any field, whether it be medical, whether it be in the education, whether it be political, whether it be in entertainment, whether it be in sports? Have you ever noticed those people, they just seem always to come to the top, but you look at them real closely and they have no ethics, no moral, no integrity at all. They'll crawl in the bed with anybody in order to climb the ladder. They'll take a bribe, it doesn't matter. They'll compromise, they have no opinion. They just find out what the opinion is in the room and they vacillate toward it. They're not driven by anything. That was Zacchaeus. And yet he was miserable. So we come to his condition. He was miserable. Had everything and yet he had nothing. He was all by himself, all alone. He didn't have family, didn't have friends from all indication. He was, uh, he was a single, solitary life. He had pushed everybody away. Let me ask you something. Are you doing that? You know, some people say they don't have no friends, but are you pushing everybody away? That was Zacchaeus. His condition was like that. I, I, Sheila and I, we still watch The Little House on the Prairie, and, you know, Nels and Charles Olson... We're having a conversation one day, and Nell said to Charles, a quick background, uh, Charles was to pay, his, his bill was kind of up, and he was counting on his crop, and in those days you could lose a crop like that. A bad storm came through. The Ingalls lost their crop. Charles and Caroline and their children went to the Olson's Mercantile. They walked in, and Charles said, to, you know, Nels, he said, Nels, he said, I just going to have to tell you that I lost my crop last night. Nails immediately, this kind, compassionate man, he was just filled with mercy and compassion, said, listen, you do whatever you need to do. Your credit's still good here. You get, you get what you need to get. Who her, who, and Harriet Olson, you remember she overheard that? And boy, she came unglued, and she let loose on both of them. And Nell's pretty, I meant, uh, Charles, you remember, he lost it, told her what he thought. They walked out, and then every one of those children, every one of those children got a job, every one of them. Mary was doing a seamstress. Um, Charles was shoveling horse manure while he was trying to refarm. Uh, Caroline was out there picking up this battered, beat up by the hailstorm crop that was laying on the ground. Charles was also digging this uh, whatever, and they were all working together, all working together. Let me tell you something, families. You may think sometimes, I don't know how we're going to make it, Financially, things are hard. It's difficult. We're having a hard time making all me. Hey, listen, all of you get together, get before God, pray, and then all work together. God will help you figure it out. Sheila and I, we've never made a lot, but all our children have gone through school. God will figure out how to get your kids through school. He had everything that a man could want. He was the chief of the tax collectors. And yet, as Nels looked at Charles, when Charles paid off that account, Nels Olson said to Charles, and Nels had everything, he said, Charles, I believe you're the richest man in Walnut Grove. Why? Because Charles had what money could not buy. Sheila and I, we've lived all over the world. 
We were in Zimbabwe, Africa. There was a time when we were making $14,000 a year, and that was all we were making. We had bought a car. We were in debt. We had bought a car down in Johannesburg, South Africa. Ledge had to have a surgery. We were trying to sell the car. We didn't, figure, we didn't know how we were going to buy Christmas, let alone Ledge, get Ledge from Zimbabwe down to South Africa. And listen, on top of that, I had the sale of that car, everything finalized when the woman backed out, and I'll never forget, I cried and beat the dash of my mission vehicle. Eventually, I sold that car. I lost a good bit of money on that car from the previous price I could have sold it for for that price, but I rejoiced and thanked God. Why? Because God took care of us. God will take care of you. That's success. Zacchaeus didn't know any of it. You know, I was reading about lottery winners. Listen to this. According to USA Today, because Sheila and I, we go by coming through Pearl. Have you seen that? How many of you do that? Oh, yeah, all of you do it. You know you do. Half a billion dollars in one lottery? Sheila and I, she, Sheila will always look at me, and she'll kind of look at me like, uh, uh, like she's kind of being sneaky. She'll say, if, if I ever bought a lottery ticket and, and won... Would we keep the money? Woman, are you crazy? Of course we'd keep the money. We'd give our tithe to this church. We'd buy Bell a new car. Yeah, we'd keep the money. We'd just help people do all kinds of stuff. But let me read to you what USA Today says. Lottery winners have experienced bankruptcy, divorce, prison time, and have even been murdered. William Bud Post won $16.2 million jackpot in 1988 in Beaver County. Beaver County Times reported, it said this was the start of a series of unfortunate events for this man by the name of Post. His ex-girlfriend, that tells you a lot, sued him for her share of the winnings and won. His brother hired a hitman in an effort to inherit a part of the cash. Other relatives spent months demanding money. Within one month of Post winning $16.2 million, he filed for bankruptcy and was a million dollars in debt. Denise Rosie won $1.2 million in a California lottery, immediately filed for divorce. Two years later, her ex-husband found out that she had won that money, took her to court, and the judge awarded the entire amount to her ex-husband. Brother Jeff, what are you telling us? I'm telling you that money doesn't buy happiness. William Barclay said this, he said, Zacchaeus was wealthy, but he was not happy. He was lonely, and he chose a life that made him an outcast. And he's drawn to a homeless, penniless, Galilean preacher. <laughs> wow. Let me ask you something. Does Zacchaeus need a miracle? Did he need money? Did he need money? Was he sick? Did he need, was he blind? Was he lame? Was he deaf? Was he dumb? Did he, need, did he need healing? 
Well, why in the world is he going and climbing a sycamore tree? Do you realize how embarrassing that is for a man of his prominence, his position, his prestige to climb a sycamore tree, to climb in front of a crowd of people in order to catch a glimpse of a penniless, homeless, Galilean fisherman, I mean carpenter turned preacher? Let me ask you something. This seeking and saving... Do you have a joy that comes from the Holy Spirit? Do you have the kind of life that it really doesn't matter what you drive, what you wear, where you live? Do you have the kind of life that just attracts people? People are just, they just gravitate toward you? Zacchaeus had everything, but Zacchaeus didn't have nothing. Look at Luke, take a left, look at Luke 15, 1. Luke 15 is, is, the, is the chapter that talks about the, the, it talks about the prodigal son, right? Talks about the lost coin, the lost sheep. But look at, look at Luke 15, verse 1. Now who? Now the what? The tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The Pharisees, the religious people, they couldn't stand the fact that Jesus would hang around with a man named, a man like Zacchaeus, a traitor. Wow. You know, John D. Rockefeller was asked this question. He said, how much is enough? Anybody want to guess? Told you before. John D. Rockefeller, one of the most wealthy men. You know what? When somebody asked him, how much is enough money? He smiled and said, one dollar more than I got right now. Can't never get enough. And this was Zacchaeus. I counseled a man one time years ago. I'll never forget this. We sat again in a restaurant. We were talking. He said... He said, Brother Jeff, he said, I don't understand it. He said, my wife has $170,000 in her checking account. Marge, the way you look just now is the way I look too. I thought to myself, when he told me that, I thought, what would it be like to go write a check for a brand new, I mean, diesel max, super duper truck and write a check for it? He said, my wife has over $170,000 in her checking account. She has point over $2 million in her savings account. And she looked at me and said, it's not enough. And he said to me, he said, Brother Jeff, what is enough? I said, undoubtedly, I don't know either. Why? Because let me tell you something about life and about what some people will live their life for. The things of this world will never satisfy. There's something, Augustine said this. He said there's a God-sized hole in you and I, and he said the only thing that will satisfy it is our Creator God. That's it. You can fill it, hey listen, you can fill it with alcohol, you can fill it with drugs, you can fill it with sex, you can fill it with all the things that the world offers, and listen, you come up empty, and you're lonely, and you're isolated, and you look around, you think, what is the key to happiness? And a man walked down my driveway one day, he asked me this question, he said, how much do you owe right now? I said, what do you mean? He said, how much do you owe? He said, now let's just not talk about the house. But he said, how much do you owe? And I said, well, to be honest with you, I think, and I was figuring fast. 
Oh, well, well. I said, probably about $3,000. Came, came down my driveway, had $3,100 bills. Handed me $3,000. He said, I don't know what's going to happen to me. He said, but I want you to know this. He said, I love you. And he looked at my place down there, sitting down on the gravel, down there in this hole. And he looked down there and he said, there's a feeling down here in your home that I don't have. He said, it feels peaceful here. Your home ought to be a harbor. Your home ought to be a place the kids can't wait to get home to. I remember years ago, Sheila would cook fried chicken on Mondays. Man, listen, you want, to get, you want to get our boys home, you want to get the kids home, you just cook fried chicken, mashed potatoes, some kind of vegetable, cornbread, and something for dessert. I mean, they came out of the woodwork. Hey, nothing got in the way of that. Make your harbor, make your home a harbor. Zacchaeus, he didn't have a home. He didn't have a harbor. He was a lonely, isolated man who had everything the world could offer yet he didn't have nothing. The principle here, the things of this world will never satisfy. They're never enough. And his identity, and your identity is not weighed by what you wear, what you drive, where you live. You know, somebody, you remember the old, bull, you remember the old bumper stickers, and y'all forgive me, people from Madison, don't get into your, I'm not going to say it. But, you know, back years ago, Sheila grew up in Canton. And um, I met Sheila. Of course, we've been dating and married now for 46-plus years. So nearly 50 years. And I'll never forget when the bumper sticker came out and said, Madison's not for sale. And I thought, honey, y'all been selling every square inch of Madison for a long time now. I can remember when Madison wasn't nothing. And you know, a lot of times people think, well, you know, we look. You'll leave me. We live in Madison. Oh. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter what you drive. It doesn't matter what kind of job you have. It doesn't matter how much money you have. My friend, if you don't have Jesus Christ, what is it profit of the world? What is it profit of man to gain the whole world and lose what? Hey, let me tell you something, and I'll close in a moment. Drove an ambulance for about four years, field medical officer. Been to a lot of homes. Let me tell you, when you pick up somebody and they're dead, it doesn't matter whether you picked a homeless man up on the side of the road. It doesn't matter if you pick the most affluent man in the entire city. My dad used to say this, but boy, it's so true. And I want you to listen. When your rear hits that stainless steel table that you're ultimately set on and they start draining your blood out and pumping the embalming fluid in, it doesn't matter in that moment what you drive, where you live, how much money you got in savings in your bank. None of that matters. It doesn't make a dime's worth of difference. The only thing that matters in that moment is where you are spending eternity. That's it. And Nicodemus, I mean, uh, Zacchaeus, he didn't know that. He didn't know that. He had everything, yet he had nothing. He 
was successful. But he didn't have anything else. And that may be you. Because I can tell you, until you do what Graceland has done. And let me tell you, it takes a lot when somebody comes down and says, I was baptized as a child, but I just did not understand. I don't know why I did it, but it just simply did not feel right. Something was wrong. And you give your life to Christ and you settle it in your heart and you follow in believer's baptism. And I looked at her and I looked at Hayden Wednesday night. I said, for the rest of your life, for the rest of your life, you can know that you know that if you die, you'll go to heaven because you have repented of your sin and you've asked Jesus Christ to come into your heart. And there's great victory in that. And that may be you today. Now let me tell you, young people, you get all the education you want. Hey, hey, let me tell you, you win half a billion dollar lottery. But I can promise you this, and I have a lot of experience in talking to people that are wealthy. I can promise you this much. It won't buy you one dime's worth of happiness. Not a dime. And you may say, Brother Jeff, I'm a Christian. I, I live for Jesus. We don't have a lot. That's right. But in your little old home with very little, you may be happier and there may be more laughter, may be more joy than a multi-million dollar house built out on a reservoir. Because Jesus is everything. Zacchaeus needed something that money could not Let's stand. Our Heavenly Father, we just come to you. And Lord, we thank you for this time that we've had in your word. And Lord, I hardly got into this message, Lord. There's so much more and we'll look next week. But we'll look at actually why money doesn't bring happiness. What is it? What is it sometimes about money that can blind us to the so many things that we need to see? So, Lord, I pray right now, we pray, we come to you, and, Lord, if there's a, a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, who's never given their life to Christ, they have no assurance of their salvation. There may be some in the sound of my voice, whether they'll listen later, whether it's by Facebook or whatever, who may say, I've, I've got everything that money can buy, but the one thing that I don't have is contentment and peace. I don't have joy. So Lord, may we understand that when we repent of our sin and ask Jesus Christ to come into our hearts, that in that moment that God, the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, is now living in us, giving us counsel, bringing us joy. Is it always a pleasant experience? No, holiness hurts. Are there times that He grips us and convicts us and we fall into habits, old patterns of sin 
And in those moments, we feel the agonizing presence of a grieving Holy Spirit. And in that moment, Jesus is saying, I'm in this heart. There's not room for that in here with me. But for some in this room, they've never given their life to you. For some who may listen, they've never done what I'm getting ready to lead them now to do. That's what I did as a grown man kneeling in front of a desk, kneeling down on blue carpet with my face down in a chair. But I prayed these words, and I pray if someone, I prayed this with my mom and talked about that last week, even moments before she died. But I pray right now that if there's one here that would ask Jesus to come into their heart, that they would just simply pray and mean it. Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive me of my sin. Lord, I'm sorry. I repent. And I ask you to come in to cleanse me to forgive me, to be the Lord and the master of my life. I thank you, Jesus, for what the Bible teaches and what I prayed. That right now, I am saved by God's grace through faith. It's the gift of God. I thank you, Jesus. And I pray this in your name. Jesus. Amen. If you prayed that prayer in your minute right now, I'm going to give you an opportunity. So we sang a hymn of invitation. You come down, you say, Brother Jeff, I prayed that prayer. I meant it. And I want to do today what Graceland did. I want to follow in believers' baptism. If you're here today and you're a woman or you're a young lady and you say, you know, I'm, I'm a little nervous. Let me tell you, there's two people right here. My wife, my daughter right here. Sheila's right here. She'll pray with you. She'll pray with you. You say, Brother Jeff, or you say to Sheila, Sheila, I prayed that prayer. I meant it. And I want to I wanna make it public. Sheila will know how to pray with you. You come. You come. Russell's here. I'm here. You come right now. May never be a moment like this moment. Don't put it off. You're not happy. You're not happy. Things of the world are not bringing you joy. Christ loves you. You come now.